This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by Skull Splitter Dice. Uh, head to skullsplitterdice.com slash tomeshow to get a 15% off coupon. It's also supported by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tomes, Amazon, and DMs Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash tomeshow. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show. I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And Jeff couldn't make this episode, number 329, so we'll play his character as an NBC in this episode of those very special non-player characters we all know and love, Team Splug. Joining us for this episode is quite the cast of characters. Uh, first up, hey Teos, this is your first time on, right? Uh, I think so. I think I did stuff with like James, but it wasn't officially Tome Shop. Right. So, that voice is Teos Abadia? Known as Alpha Stream and designer and author of a large number of RPG books, articles, and blogs. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Yeah. And I haven't been able to talk to you in such a long time because we used to I used to see you at a lot of the conventions and stuff. Yeah, we it's been many times since we ran into each other at Gen Con. Yeah. And then also joining us for this episode is DM Jazzy Hands, Ohenio Vargas. Ohenio, welcome hey, back. Everybody. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm I'm liking this streak I've got going. <laughs> So in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, depictions of NPCs, how to flesh them out, make them interesting or not, voices, representation, and more. Uh, but before we get too far into that, uh, let's mention our sponsor, Skull Splitter Dice. If you head over to SkullSplitterDice.com, you'll find a coupon code, give you 15% off. That's the that's Tome Show is the code. And they'll know you came from us as well. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. That one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies, Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. And now on to the meat of our advice how to bring non-player characters to life. So first, just in case there's someone out there who doesn't know what NPCs or non-player characters are, who wants to take a stab at that? Oh, we're both so polite. Uh, I'll go ahead and do a quick a quick rundown. So uh, in role-playing games, right, the main focus of many stories are your player characters because those are the people at your table. Uh, but in most any world, they're going to have to interact with other individuals as part of the story, right? If we're thinking about a video game RPG, it's your quest givers and your uh, your townsfolk and your vendors and things like that. So an NPC, a non-player character, is any character that shows up in your game that is not run by one of your players as their primary character. And I want to add, add another piece to that. They're also a great way that you as DM get to play. Yeah, absolutely. It's the DM's host of characters. So that maybe you don't have to do a DMPC? Oh, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. So much pressure. 
That sounds like that sounds like another episode topic. I know. And <laughs> and just in case some um, folks don't know what a DMPC is, that's actually when a, a, a dungeon master decides to play their own player character. Um, and the reason that I think most of us are laughing is that while it may sometimes seem like a way to get the DM in and playing the game with everyone else, what sometimes happens is that that character somehow becomes the star of the show or otherwise has things that make other people annoyed. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Among a host of other reasons. <laughs> so for um, DMs that like to have characters in the, in the story, an NPC is a nice way to limit them. Totally. Sweet. Um, so do we want to talk a little bit about, so these are just NPCs. They're not really in-depth characters, are they? It can be. Yeah, and I think, uh, so, you know, talking about what makes an NPC sort of memorable or enjoyable for your character is that, uh, you know, I think they they aren't fully fleshed out, long backstoried characters necessarily, like your player characters, though I suppose they could be as well. Um, but it's if you really want to create one that sort of is memorable to your character, is a little bit of depth, right? A little bit of complexity, even if it's just one thing that you introduce uh, with this NPC, is enough to sort of make them something that your players can latch onto. Yeah, and I'd say that you want an NPC to be be around, sort of like that quote about when wizards show up, like exactly when they're meant to be. Like mm. NPCs should stick around exactly as long as they should stick around and be as involved as they should and. and so that's one of the, the dials that you control as DM is how important is this? How much does it matter? And you might put in an NPC and it just bombs and that NPC should leave really quickly. And then one is like a favorite. And you're like, well, that one's going to stick around longer, right? Yeah, that is exactly one of the points that I had that I wanted to talk about, which is, uh, and and you sort of, you, you slipped in this little detail, which is that uh, what determines exactly how long they should be around has a lot more to do with how your players are, respond to them than what you intend to begin with. Because yeah. as anyone who's ever DM'd anything ever knows, your expectations about your plots and your characters and your storylines uh, are, are very often... Uh, sort of upended as soon as they meet your players. Yeah. Um, most of my favorite NPCs in my games are folks that were, in my mind, throwaway NPCs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, players. <laughs> right. We love them. Well, we you must have given them a name then, right? Oh my god, I'm <laughs> terrible at this. I'm so, th so, this is funny because my my players, particularly for my podcast, make fun of me all the time and will ask me NPCs that they know very well are never going to be seen again what their names are because they love to watch me struggle to come up with a name. Yeah. But there was like a, a, a live play at a convention where Jerry Holkins running an Acquisitions Incorporated game uh, was asked what the name of the NPC was after some <laughs> like amount of dialogue. And I think he said Bob. Right. Good like, on him. The second he said it, just had this face of "oh no," and everybody was like, "oh yes, now we get to you know rib you about this one." <laughs> right, and that's why it's, if some DM screens have like that random roll table, or even the book will have a, a table of random names, so that you don't necessarily have to come out with Bob unless that's what you're going for. Yeah, I have the tables from Xanathar's. There are non-human and human name tables at the back of Xanathar's, and I have those open pretty much all the time now because I know I'm going to get ambushed at some point. Um, but the the point I think that that you know we're sort of dancing around uh, that you tried tried to get us to before I started complaining about being bad at naming things. Uh, 
is you know what is it about it uh, about a, a P- an NPC whether it's their name or or the way that they're introduced that sort of makes them stand out to characters names are totally a great way to do that um, descriptions of who they are right if you know your players sort of love I don't know, like you have a wizard who loves her familiars or a ranger who loves his animal companions or something like that, then, you know, maybe make the NPC a tabaxi, make it a cute animal for them Mm -hmm. to love. If they love, if you do great voices, then, you know, really flesh out sort of the voice for an NPC. It doesn't have to be anything super complex, but one or two really standout things are usually enough to, to get players' attention. And then from there, like I said, you can sort of see if they latch on to the NPC. That's a great point. In general, a good advice for for any DM when they're designing an NPC ahead of time is don't overdo it. Uh, You can do all the planning you want, but at the end of the day, it should always fit on an index card, both because it could be thrown away, it just might not resonate with the players, but also because you're going to overthink it and overdo it if you go deeper than that. You just want these couple of like bullet points of coolness of why they might care. Something they remember, something they'll engage with and react to. You don't need a whole lot more than that. If they become fan favorites, then you can go in and add the backstory and link them to the plot and whatever. But initially, you just just carry out the function. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I know this was a is a whole topic that we want to get to eventually, uh, and this can be the segue, or we can come back to it. But one of the things that I, I think, particularly for um, f- mm, for newer DMs, I guess, but but also for experienced DMs, I, I still have to do this sometimes. Um, if you find yourself sort of defaulting in your NPCs to, uh, you know, human dudes or elf males or, or whatever, or, or a very specific sort of uh, gender and race and, and physical description, right? I would encourage one of the things that you put on that index card to be the NPC's gender, to be the NPC's race, to be that thing mm-hmm. that is different about the NPC's appearance. Um, because I know I, and I've been working on this for years, particularly since I started my actual play podcast, because I realize that I do it all the time. I, without thinking, will start gendering all my NPCs as, as he, him. Uh, mm-hmm. And it isn't because I want it to be that way. And, and there are absolutely, you know, uh, women and non-binary and trans NPCs in all of my worlds. Um, but I, the way that I really had to work on starting to make sure that those individuals were included in my games was by making that a, that a part of my planning, right? That's I may cool. not know the names of the parents and where an NPC is from, but in my little description of them before I introduce them, I do have their pronouns. I do have their race. Uh, and if they are, you know, a, a human-ish race, I usually try and put some sort of basic either description of them or sometimes if they're human more often than not, I'll try and put some sort of a like actual earth culture analog to the way that they uh, sort of move through the world. Just because I know that I don't want to get stuck in my brain's own defaults for those things. Yeah, you know, one thing I do around gender, um, I'm curious how often this comes up for, for your games, but I will assign a gender, but then sometimes during play I'll realize, well, they just finished interacting with, you know, two guys. That's This guy was going to be male for whatever reason. I'm changing their gender. And I just, you know, you do the usual thing of throw in an A on the end or remove the A on the end or just change the name a bit to be more male or female or androgynous, whatever. And you just change it up because you've done too much of one thing. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, having having that detail in my notes is enough to make me conscious of it, right? Which which often that's that's the point, right? It's it, every NPC doesn't have to be locked in from the start, but having that note in front of me reminds me to be conscious of it. So maybe my players uh, maybe they have their own guess or their own assumption about what uh, race or gender the NPC is, and they start interacting with it in that way before I explain it. I'll go with that. Or like you say, Teos, yeah. maybe I, I have had a lot of the same thing just because of the way the session is rolled out, and I want to change it up. Having that note in front of me will remind me to think about that. It's also cool to try to break up the the stereotypes of like gender being a particular class or a particular race or anything like that. And so it's, it's good to do that. Like, um, you know, Warforged don't need a gender. And, and so sometimes you want to assign a gender, but it's a great opportunity to not do that. Yes. You know, and a lot of the 4E crazy races like shard mines or, you know, something that's insectoid or whatever, like we really don't have to hold to the default expectation of binary, right? Like it, this is a great opportunity, especially if, if our players are not, um, maybe as, as, as attuned as we'd like on these kinds of issues, it's a great opportunity to get them to accept uh, all, all, the, all of the rainbow, right? All Absolutely. the possibilities. And for, Absolutely. For a, um, there was a few years ago um, a conversation about even if you're populating out a city or a town with uh, these NPCs, you can random roll the, the genders on a lot of stuff too or, or other aspects of their identity uh, to help make sure, to help create that um, wide representation so that you're not always defaulting. Because I know sometimes even I do it when I'm trying to do 20 different characters all at once. After a while, I, I end up picking a pattern, <laughs> not, yeah, not meaning to. Um, and the other thing I wanted to bring up, too, uh, I don't know if how many of you have read the Uncaged anthologies. Mm, yes. Um, in, that, in, those, in a lot of those adventures, the uh, writers did point out um gender and pronouns and stuff like that as well so it's a good uh, opportunity to see that in action and same thing with with uh skin tone is another one that uh we can make assumptions around when someone should have a darker skin tone based on our real world ratios that real world has for all kinds of historical crazy horrible reasons mm -hmm. uh and we can we can do that too right right uh, is the nobility always white, right? Like, no, right. <laughs> let's totally upend that, right? We can make the world cool. Let's do that. Right. right. Sorry, go ahead, Tracy. I was going to say one of the interesting things, both with um, skin tone and gender kind of too, is that um, when I used to have these discussions a lot, I would run into people who would say, well, I wouldn't want um, gender means something or about the character or the skin tone would mean something about the character. And it gets really interesting when you move it over to the fantasy world, particularly on the skin tone side, but also with gender, why is it like if you happen to have um, a store where all of the employees are women, why does that necessarily say something where if you had that store full of men, it wouldn't? Mm. I, I don't yeah. know. I hope that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. One interesting thing about the Forgotten Realms, when, when people, you know, people are doing D&D, &D, um, it is canonically very brown uh -huh. and at all levels of society because there's a lot of of mixing from all kinds of different countries in all of the big cities and so you really tend to have a lot of brown and even some of the races that we we think of as not being brown like say sun elves actually are sun elves are actually very dark 
and they're, you know, they have like, like a, a good, rich, like mahogany brown color. And that's not something we, we think about. And a lot of the old art didn't represent that, but that's the canonical truth of it. And you can do the same thing in any world, but it's, it's, it's sometimes surprising that even our thought process around the fantasy world can be incorrect and based on our real, real world supposition. So all the more reason to upend it. And same thing with vampires. Vampires, uh, you know, some some games have done a really good job of showing how vampires don't have to be the like pale white guy. Mm. Yeah, and and the the sort of beautiful thing about that is that even if you're using a canon world, right? Remember that as a DM, it is your version of the world. And so you can decide, right? You can take Tracy's example and say, what does it mean if a shop is full of women versus full of men versus full of brown people versus full of white people? Well, you can decide if it means something or maybe at your table, it doesn't mean anything. And that's kind of the point, right? Maybe uh, for, I have a few tables in particular where we like, as part of our session zeros, we've talked about how like, we just, that's not a thing that we want to like, we don't want to do a deep dive during our, our game time into, uh, you know, gender and, and racial politics. And so our choice then is consciously that like this world is a diverse one and nobody thinks it's weird. Nobody comments on it. It's just not a thing. And if that's the kind of escapism gaming you want to play, like by all means, that's a beautiful thing for us to be able to do. Yeah. And I tend to lean that way too. Like, I just like to have a better world. You know, the problems I like to have in the world are evil wizards and liches and stuff like that. Not, not this stuff that we deal with in the real world. Right, right. And I and I want to be clear that like I'm not advocating for like ignoring the problems throughout your whole life. I'm just saying nope. like as a person of color, as a queer person, like I know that sometimes it's exhausting and I just want to play D&D and exactly what you said, Teo, is like fight the evil wizard and the lich, not yeah. like have a conversation about why it's not okay that uh, you know, whatever it is. I I don't need to give examples. We all know what they are. You mean yeah. like our version of escapism? <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways it is, right? And and gaming can be so many things, right? There are so many opportunities in gaming for NPCs and for worlds and for um, diversity and representation in gaming to be like actually very sort of political and very uh, uh, progressive and very sort of moving the needle, particularly for our community, but for all communities that have their eyes on on things like this. And that's awesome. And I have tables that do that too. And there's nothing wrong with that. But yes, sometimes you want your game to be escapism. And I, I do think that um, I do think that sometimes some people uh, need to be reminded that escapism doesn't just mean not worrying about, you know, your financial issues, but for some of us, it means not worrying about racism and not worrying about, uh, you know, queer phobia and things like that. Um, and this is a great way that you can sort of have that moment. Yeah. Um, so maybe along those lines too, um, if you are trying to add elements into your world that you may not be living uh, yourself or have as much experience with, do we have some ideas of how for NPCs we can do that? In a, I know it's a whole episode on itself, but are there any <laughs> quick things that we would want to talk about around that topic? Mm. Um, so I, I have given a talk, I think it was at Oh, gosh, I don't remember if it was at Gen Con or at PAX East, but I I did a a panel about voices, NPC voices. Um, And that's that's one place that we can sort of start to talk about this, you know, an easy way to telegraph uh, a certain thing about a character is by is by giving them a voice. And 
you know, there are sort of two ways that you can work with an NPC's voice. It can be uh, sort of their tone of voice, their style of voice, right? They can have a gruff, gravelly voice, or they can have sort of a lighter, higher voice, or you can do those sorts of modulation things and or accents, right? You can give your NPC an accent. An accent is sort of what I want to talk about, particularly when we talk about this, like, let's be careful and respectful and and aware. the way that I talked about it at the uh, in the panel was probably a little reductive, but like a super easy rule of thumb for me uh, is that when I'm thinking about doing an accent that is from a region of our real world that I that is uh, that involves a culture that I'm not a part of, right? I generally think it's totally fine for you to do that accent if the accent comes from a country that in world history was a colonizer. And I think that doing an accent from a country that was largely colonized uh, is probably something you want to steer clear of just Mm -hmm. in general, right? And that's a super generalization, and I understand that it is not a perfect sort of rule of thumb, but, like, I don't feel bad doing an English accent. I think there's not really any reason for me to try to do, let's say, an Indian accent, Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, if we just want to be super general about this. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And that's that's especially true if you're going to do something where like you're doing convention games, right? Like, yeah. With, with our home groups, we can we can always, if we know our players, we can do things a little differently and take some liberties. The other thing is we can we can upend tropes, and so we can do an accent that's clearly contrary to that real world uh, origin, and then it can be interesting and distinct, distinctive, right? Like if we wanted to add a clicking noise. But then there's nothing else that has to do with being from an African tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then that can be very different, and, and our players will understand this because they know who we are as people. But at a convention table, I would never try that, even if I'm trope-breaking, because it could just come off so wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's a good point, Teos, is that this is such a different thing to approach at a public game versus at your home game. Because I think it all comes when we're do when we're representing people that are unlike ourselves uh, as NPCs culturally and, and gender wise and and uh, uh, and on the LGBTQ spectrum. Uh, it's all about sort of having that conversation with your players uh, and being able to know them and feel comfortable with having that conversation ahead of time. You know, if you if you want to explore an NPC that is of a particular group that you are not a part of, but one of your players is, have that conversation. You know, if you're not comfortable enough to have the conversation with that player, then you probably shouldn't be doing the voice or the the attitude or the whatever it is, right? And that's that's probably another good acid test, which is would you feel comfortable doing this voice if a member, someone who who has that voice is at the table and doesn't know you? Yeah, that's so smart. That's a great acid test, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like if you don't like doing a southern voice for your character, you know, that you play as a country bumpkin, uh, when someone shows up who has a heavy southern voice, well, then you probably shouldn't do it with anybody at a convention. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, this is tough, right? This is a this is a real sort of minefield to navigate. And and I understand that. And I I don't want to discourage people from from trying to learn and about and understand and and sort of put themselves in the shoes of people who are different than them, right? Because that on some level is what 
role-playing is about, what these games are about, right? Is getting to experience and learn what it's like to be someone else. Um, but I do think that, you know, we do have to be very careful. We do have to be very thoughtful because again, back to the escapism thing, maybe somebody at your table is trying to escape the sort of assumptions and stereotypes that surround the way that you're portraying this NPC and, you know, then you have a problem. So for me, it all just comes down to talking about it. If there's a player at your table who represents that group, talk to them. If you're really into like portraying a particular culture or group of people and you don't have anyone at your table seek them out twitter's a magic thing the internet is a magical thing right there are so many places that you can go and and people you can talk to and and you know people who are willing to to have that conversation to to inform you and there's also a lot of streamers and other people that are playing that are from different uh backgrounds in the real world that are playing characters that that also you can just watch it too. Like you can talk to them, which is great as well. But if you're the type of person that's just like, I, I want to observe a little bit first before yeah. to have that conversation. That's also a great way um, of getting an idea. And I think another point to point out, cause you started talking about like stereotypes and stuff like that. Um, one way I kind of view it is, you know, a lot of times those stereotypes or tropes are the outsider view of the of that group rather than the inside view of, you know, how um, my particular values mm-hmm. and the way society sees me shapes how I act. There's often like this stereotypes tend to be like, I will always act this way. And, and uh, I think the thing you're talking about is more like trying to understand that people have a lot of the same needs and ways of going around the world, but how the world interacts with them um, and the values that they have, it can be slightly different and that will inform what the yeah. actual actions they take. You know, one thing on, on voices, um, so, you know, like, Eugenio, you're you're in the acting field, so you're pretty good about this, but a lot of people will say that they're really bad at uh, voices. <laughs> and so one thing that I would also say as advice is that you, you don't necessarily need to have, like, a full voice persona for a couple of reasons. One is, like, some of us just don't have it in us to do it. Um, I'm okay. But a lot of people, that, that's just not their skill set, and that's fine. But you can do things that aren't like, you know, impersonate a British person or anything like that. Like you can just do things like if the NPC always drags out the last word in their sentence. Right. Like that's a verbal cue, but it's not something that we have to like suddenly be a world class actor or actress. We can just, you know, it's just we're just going to talk and then we're going to end our sentence and we're going to do that (laughs) consistently. And it's going to, you know, and the players are going to remember, yep, this is that NPC that does this, right? And, and then it becomes this verbal cue that they're used to. Or everything's an exclamation point type sentence. <laughs> you know, like, like, right? And so it doesn't have to be an accent. It can, it, just, it can be something else about the voice that becomes a cue and becomes memorable and, and funny. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'll say is don't, you know, if you're not a trained, you know, mimic or or impersonator or actor or whatever, also like, uh, I don't know, particularly if you're at a game with your friends, a home game, like don't be afraid to try stuff out. I am, I may be a trained actor who has taken voice and dialect classes for years. I am absolutely abysmally terrible at Scottish accents, right? I just, I can't do them. They sound, they end up sounding like some strange hybrid of like Australian and Irish and I don't know what else. And it, doesn't sound Scottish at all. But sometimes I make my characters have what in my brain is a Scottish accent. And when my players make fun of me for it, which they do because I love them and they love me, I just say, well, there's no Scotland in the Forgotten Realms. So maybe this is what that accent sounds like. You don't know. (laughs) Right? Like, 
it doesn't matter if it's accurate. It just is what it is. Like it's how that NPC talks. Who cares? Yeah. And if you're playing a game that's that's real world, th- then it can get a little trickier, right? So like sure. I used to play a lot of spycraft uh, games, and and I like it sounds. It's a game of espionage, and it's a game where it takes you around the world on all these various missions. And so like you really are representing like you know, the members of the Congo delegation that just found the body and are reporting it to your group. And then you're like, well, what do you do? And and again, you don't have to do a full reproduction. Like, it's okay. There are other immersive parts of your game and you can just, you know, work with what you have and and maybe just add an interesting phrase here or there that, that just says this person is foreign, but isn't your attempt to reproduce that group. Same thing, right? Like we, Asian is another one where, trying to like half do an Asian accent, you know, it's just better not to. Definitely agree there, yeah. Um, And then, so, the other thing we've been kind of talking about here uh, is the DM creating these NPCs. Uh, Is a DM the only person that can create them? Mm. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess it really depends, right? Yeah, it depends on their function. It depends on how they're being introduced, why they're being introduced. Uh, You could certainly, uh, you know, maybe your characters, your PCs have in their backstory, they have relatives or or friends or acquaintances or connections or whatever that uh, they've written about and that they know about in their backstory. And maybe those become NPCs, right? Uh, Or maybe just during some of your early sessions or really in any session, maybe at your table, uh, the sort of default way that the world gets built is that there's a lot of player inputs. You know, you ask them to tell you things about the town that they've just come into and those things become canon. And maybe one of the things they're going to tell you about is the tavern owner that they know particularly well for whatever reason. So, yeah, there's definitely options and ways that you can involve your players. And I'd say with that one, like, like you really have to feel your group out. Um, I've played with a number of DMs that will sort of, you, you walk into the bar and, and you go up to the bartender and you, and you say, well, my character wants to go to the bar and then go up to the bartender. And they go, great, tell me one thing that's memorable about the bartender. And some people love that. And one really nice thing is that players tend to really remember it because they came up with it. But some people say, you just took me out of immersion what do you mean this isn't a real world and that I have a hand in creating it? Should, isn't there a reality here and you're creating it? So it just varies by group. Yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about, and I know it's been out for a while, is the, the Dresden Files uh, attempts at doing the Session Zero uh, and things like that, where basically you, are, you help create characters in the world um, together before you start playing. Um, yeah. And that gives you that bond with them, and it's something that that you can feel pretty confident about without, I don't know if it makes sense. Cause sometimes when it's only the DM creating these things, there's a lot of like lots of questions that you have to ask to, in order to, to feel like you really know what that character is. Whereas if you're allowed to create some of them in a way that works, you create them as a group, it might actually help you with the world. Um, but if you do it before the game starts, it's, I, I get the immersion part. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the Dresden Files world building, and, and I do highly suggest that DMs take a look at that because it is such a neat idea. It really is like kind of like, okay, tell me about you know what's going on. And we, we're playing a, a sort of Fey-heavy game in uh, it's set in real-world Portland, Oregon, where I where I, where I live. Uh, and so it was kind of like, tell us about what it is. And we did things like you know, labor is hairy. So sort of like all of the people involved in sort of the the 
the the labor like taxi drivers dock workers whatever they tend to be werewolves like there's a lot of that going on right people with fur and mortals don't know that everyday people don't know that but that's what's really going on behind the scenes and so then with that little bit the dm knows okay like if you're doing something that involves like taking a cab or you go down to the docks there could be a lot of this going on that makes sense and that sounds really cool too um, and I, so I know we touched on it a little earlier, um, like voices is one way to make NPCs interesting. Are there other things, are there any other tips that you can give about making them interesting or deciding not to make an NPC interesting? <laughs> Don't decide not to make an NPC interesting. It'll immediately become the focus of your entire campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I may be I may be somewhat traumatized by some of my players. <laughs> also, be careful with names that rhyme at all with private oh, parts because those will forever haunt you. <laughs> Kill them off quickly and move on. That's right. Um, no, in terms of in terms of other ways to make them memorable, you know, we talked about this a lot in the episode uh, that was I guess probably came out a couple weeks ago now uh, about player backgrounds. You know, if you can link, if you can create a, an NPC that has a link to at least one of your PCs, that's gonna that's gonna excite the player because something that they wrote, even if they didn't flesh out that NPC specifically, something that has to do with their character directly is gonna come up, and that's that's always exciting. That you know sort of helps that immersion feeling. It helps it make it feel like the world is true affected by the the PCs so that's definitely one uh, I don't know about easy way but but certainly straightforward way to to make NPCs important and memorable it's also worth noticing that for folks who are doing D D and this is true of other systems uh, some other systems as well but like the, the fifth edition dungeon master's guide has all of these tables for creating emer- uh, NPCs and it's awesome it has stuff like you know what is their talent like and you roll on this table or choose one, right? They're an expert cook. What is their mannerism? Uh, they enunciate overly clearly. What is uh, their their interaction trait? They're blustering, right? So, and you just, it's really surprisingly useful. It's a very good set of tables. And the, I think their DM screens have sort of a short version of that. Mm-hmm. And like an interesting trinket or other item about them that becomes recurring often helps to in my experience. Yeah, a flower secret. Um, and, and those are good ways to, to have a little depth to them so they're in your mind. Um, for me, uh, a, a really important one is what their goal is and having that clear in your mind. Uh, and, and their goal or their drive. So even if they're just like, you know, a bartender, uh, you know, what is it that this person cares about the most and and then that can sort of color their interaction with the with the pcs so whatever yeah whatever the worry is right if it's the security of the town or something well then that that comes out and it gives you a thing to 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 impact one of the things that i like with uh, the tomb of annihilation adventure is it has all those guides in it that are supposed to take you around the jungle and they're really good examples in what to do with a non-player character because they, they fit on an index card. They have something memorable about them and something to do with. Like there's this dwarf who's missing an arm and he was you know, kicked out of his home by a dragon. And he'll tell you he can take you anywhere, but he really wants to take you back to go fight that dragon. And that's a lot of fun. Oh, definitely. And then, And also keeping in mind what bits of information different NPCs would have too, I think fits in with that. 
And, you know, Mike Shea has in his Lazy Dungeon Master uh, book, uh, he'll pay me later, but um, <laughs> yeah, he has a nice uh, piece there about uh, his tips for creating NPCs. And what he says is to borrow from movies, novels, or TVs, and then switch it up a bit. Um, so he'll say, like, you know, take, like, Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but instead of being a guy, make it a woman, and then maybe, like, change two other things about them or one other thing or whatever and just do a switch but be just pretty much that that npc and what's nice about that is then you can always remember it really easily right if if it's four gaming sessions go by and you come back to it and it's like well you know this is pretty much Jin urso from rogue one you know boom like you're gonna remember that and so put all of the npcs that aren't important in red shirts yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> which will guarantee they become the most important and the characters, the yeah, players will probably keep, keep them safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> um, uh, one that I like is, is using people from your workplace. <laughs> something about them. Uh, and I, I, I'm a little, I think unusual compared to most people, but I tend to sort of really remember like ways that people speak and, and mannerisms. Like I can, if I sit there and think about it, I can usually impersonate someone like at a workplace or family member, but just if, you know, even if you don't quite have that stupid super, superhero power that I have, uh, just, you know, think about like, you know, how, if the NPC was your boss, right. What would this scene play out like? And, and that can be another easy way to just lift a character. Sounds like particularly if you're doing Acquisitions Inc. games. <laughs> yeah, you can do things like the person who always phones it in at your workplace. Person who's always sick, right? The they're just they're just all we we all can draw upon that, right? There's just so many of these that you just you know the person who's clueless, right? Has no idea what's involved in the project, right? That can happen. Like, wait, wait. Where's the, what's the evil thing? Like, what's the threat, right? You can just have those kinds of NPCs. I, I love the ones that, re, and I, I feel bad even saying this, the people that repeat the thing you just said like five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. The interrupter, right? Or you, you can even go for with like Seinfeld episodes, right? The close talker. Right. <laughs> so th those kinds of things can really be great. Great cues, great... Uh, Great inspiration. So I know I worked through the list of questions I had. Do you, is there any um, bits on this that you guys want to talk about? Well, what are like what are some of your favorite NPCs that uh, you've encountered and why? Well, I'll go back to Team Splug. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, what was the other one? The older edition one that was like team splug versus you guys might not remember you guys might i not. don't i don't a classic one is meepo from that's it i was i was oh okay is that what we were talking about because i was gonna bring up meepo actually meepo has has found his way <clears throat> into my into my game uh and he is well spoiler if you listen to the last refuge and haven't gotten through season two yet he's dead <laughs> but uh <No>. he <laughs> But he was uh, he was very quickly beloved of the characters, and and you know none of them had played Sunless Citadel, so none of them knew him from that. 
And, you know, I just picked a couple of things that they sort of latched on to. He was, you know, contradictions are always super memorable. So the fact that this tiny kobold, when I did him, had a very low voice uh, <laughs> was enough to just, like, make them latch on to him. You know, we have yeah. another NPC in the show that his contradiction <clears throat> is a little deeper. But when they met him, he was like a real he was a real a-hole uh, to the party when they met him, like just a sort of like jockey like broy awful dude but as they got to know him they actually realized that despite all of that uh he actually uh had the best interests of his tribe uh, they were sort of trying to figure out who was going to end up leading this tribe that they had met uh, and he had the best interests of his tribe at heart and actually probably was the best choice to lead them and so knowing that they had like this real sort of uh, push and pull about like, well, we don't like him, but he's probably the best. Like that activated him in their brains immediately. So contradictions are a good way to sort of, uh, I think, pop, make NPCs pop. Right. Yeah. Um, and people, no, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. As that, I think Meepo is really a study in how, when, and for people who don't know, it's this, this, uh, Look, kobold you rescue in this adventure from third edition but it, it's really i think a favorite because it's just this sort of like it feels really different to the characters to rescue sort of and take them under their wing when they're theoretically supposed to be evil and there's a great you know role to be played there and, and uh, the acquisitions incorporated adventure i'm running it for a bunch of uh, middle school kids and it has a goblin in it called Gorko, and it, it, he he plays that same role. And man, these kids love Gorko. And and Gorko, uh, his mentor died, so he's kind of looking for a mentor. It's just an obvious like, who would like to be my mentor? And uh, the kids are tripping over each other trying <laughs> to teach Gorko lessons, right? And it's just it's great. Yeah, and for me, because I, I started playing D anD D with fourth edition, and we played the adventure with uh, Splug in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I decided to play, uh, a character cause I grew up around Edie, so I know a lot of the tropes and stuff. So my character's parents were still alive. She just decided that it was time for her to go out and make her own way in the world. So she's kind of just this happy-go-lucky adventurer who has like a locket that whenever she touches it gives her hugs. So it's just, it's that type of character. And then you meet oh. Splug. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the sort of like back and forth is kind of fun go going back to those opposites type of thing but now it's between our characters and there's just this back and forth which made it memorable to me because i you know in some ways i'm kind of rooting for splug to like you know not turn on our party but i no. know it might happen <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also like npcs who um e either the party mistreats them uh, and and but they but they somehow survive and they could come back later, right? right? Join the villains, things like that. Which which in, in acquisitions incorporated canon, that's really what happens with Splugoth. They uh, basically leave him for dead, and he never forgets that and joins the evil team. But but you can so you can do that with it, uh, or or just creating the NPC that that they kind of love to hate because they're like always getting in the way or tattletailing or whatever you know it'd right. be really fun that way um in one of the games i ran uh they were going against i think it was red caps and they decided to leave one of them alive uh because there's a good cleric in the party blah 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 and uh said told them to live the good life and then i just after that just spun off that what he decided to do was 
to go off and start basically like the Star Wars cantina, but in the middle of the forest. And it was the good life because he got to drink booze because he really like he always wanted to create a bar and that was his good life. Awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of times we can I think kind of just play off on those sorts of things that the character that the player characters just kind of leave out there the threads that they're kind of help building. Yeah. I have another uh, favorite NPC type that doesn't come out too often and probably really should because it's super helpful. Uh, and I really like doing this when I'm writing something that other people will use and when I'm publishing a thing. Um, and I did it in the adventure Cloud Giant's Bargain, which is Cloud Giant's Bargain has a mission that the characters are carrying out in a Cloud Giant's castle. And there's a lot of opportunity for things to go really poorly. Uh, or, or really off the intended track. And because you're dealing with giants, and giants are super powerful, and you're supposed to be kind of sneaky and all this. So one of the things I did is that the organization that hired you, Acquisitions Incorporated, they give you this disembodied skull called Tulak. And Tulak floats around grading you and can at any point offer opinions on what you're thinking about doing. And so what it becomes is it becomes like the NPC that you as DM can use to write the ship, correct the course, you know, adjust what's going on. And that's really helpful as a DM to have that. I, I want to give another example of this, but before I do, I also want to say that as someone who ran Cloud Giant's Bargain and had to lean very heavily on that skull, uh, it is super useful. And they ended up, and that he he was exactly what you said. He was the, the NPC that they love to hate, but who like was so useful to me and was so memorable because you know, he had a few quirks that, I, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I ran it, but if I remember correctly, there was some quirks of personality quirks and things that you wrote in there, Teos. And then, of course, just having a talking skull along with you is, is <laughs> going to be pretty memorable in and of itself. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, and so that's the thing. Like, if you if you have an encounter that or, or a series, a section of your adventure where you think, like, man, I'm worried the players are just going to go sideways on me than having that kind of guide, right? Like the noble assigns this page to you. Make sure they don't get hurt. They'll guide you. Okay. You know, and like now this NPC has a reason to be there. You've got a reason to not ignore them. The, the, the nice thing about the skull is it was indestructible, so it just couldn't get killed, which is a lot of NPCs don't have that. So that's a thing that's that's nice about inanimate object NPCs. <laughs> yeah, the the analog that I was thinking of of that is is Lulu in Descent into Avernus, uh, mm-hmm. who is the the Hollyphant that sort of accompanies the party for much of the adventure, or or can accompany the party for much of the adventure. Um, and the mechanic with Lulu, of course, she's memorable to a lot of players because she's an adorable, lawful, good, uh, flying miniature golden elephant. Uh, so, like, it's plenty to work with there. Uh, but her sort of quirk and her one of her things and one of the ways, one of the levers that DMs can pull with her is that she has sort of lost a large chunk of her memories about... Uh, mm, slight spoilers if you're playing or running Descent to Vernus and haven't gotten through it yet. Uh, she has a lot of memories that she sort of regains along the way about Zariel and about her time with Zariel and how Zariel fell and all of the details of that. And so she's a great opportunity uh, to sort of roll out details about the plot and to nudge NPCs along, not even necessarily the good path, though that's what she would like, uh, but along the path that you would like them to go so that they don't end up, you know, getting into a fight with with Belle, the pit fiend who used to run Avernus uh, when they're still, you know, fifth level. Uh, along those lines, you know, you can also have 
sort of limited NPC-like things. Like you could give the the party an artifact that uh, can speak, but doesn't do so very often. So it's not a, a dominating presence or anything, but they can maybe consult this artifact or, or sentient magic item uh, some number of times a day. Right? So if they come up with questions, they're like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know, this is the right thing to do. Well, let's ask, you know, the talking necklace and <laughs> see what we should do. <laughs> that can be handy. Um, and then trying to think through, so we're talking about having the world fleshed out more by having all of these NPCs. One common issue uh, folks run into is what to do when there are multiple NPCs present in a scene. <laughs> <laughs> my players love it when I have conversations with myself and I hate it. Um, yeah, I mean, you always want to remember it. So like that, that's fine. And it happens. And, and there are going to be scenes where NPCs are going to have to have parts of conversations with each other. And it is what it is, right? Um, when that happens, you, you want to remember, and this is sort of true of any situation, of course, but you want to remember that like the story is about players and whatever conversation is happening if it doesn't if it goes on too long without involving the players a that's gonna probably be kind of boring for them but b like what purpose does it have for the pcs and their story if this conversation that's playing out in front of them doesn't involve them for a long time right and and that sort of gets back to the point of npcs right we want them to be memorable we want them to be exciting they are an integral part of our story but ultimately uh, at least for me they they are there to serve PC's story, right? Yeah. And so we always want to remember that we don't want these PCs to turn these NPCs rather to turn into DMPCs, right? To turn into the stars of the show, despite how much we as the DM might really love them and really want to explore them, right? That temptation just pulls the spotlight away from from where I think it always should be, which is on the players or the PCs. And, and I'd say the best thing that, that I I would do you know my, my preferred approach when i have this situation where i find uh oh these two and they're making my two npcs talk to each other is to get straight into an argument and turn to the pcs and go what do we do oh i love that you solve this right like so explain that the tension i think we should go left i think we should go right what do you guys think you know and just move it back to them as quickly as possible and if you need to represent their side like it's you know two political factions or something cool, try to summarize that, but try to do it like super fast. You know, there's summary yeah. statements to each other. We disagree. Hey, what do you guys want to do? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Turn it back on the players. <laughs> and definitely you don't want more than two NPCs. Like that's the worst. My God. <laughs> you know, if you have like four factions in the room, then you just summarize it. Like don't, don't try to do. Actually. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's a great, I, you don't, did you ever, did either of you run or played in, um, uh, uh, Rise of Tiamat. Yeah. So that whole thing, right, is about going to those council meetings with all of the factions, yeah. right, and having those conversations. And obviously there are ways around it, but like, what a great example of of a trap <laughs> for DMs, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. oh, and that that was one of the very first adventures that I ran. I ran Lost Minds of Fandelver, and then like messed about with my characters, with my PCs to sort of get them a little higher level. Uh, and then we started it on Rise of Tiamat, and oh man, I spent so much time prepping all of those faction representatives and knowing you know, what their positions were on the conversations that they were going to have and all of this. And it just ended up being like either it went on way too long and the players were bored because the factions were arguing and they were just sort of sitting there waiting to get their orders, 
Or we sort of cut to the chase and all of that prep was for naught because really what the players needed was, you know, here's the information, here's what this faction thinks, here's what this faction thinks, now go do the thing. So if I were to rewrite that scene, um, and and I I don't mean to say this with hubris or whatever, but but if if I had to do something like that, that kind of thing, I would, like you said, either summarize it and get it out of the way or, or just, you know, have some sort of just very high level piece that's interesting and evocative. Or literally make the players take on these roles and argue this with some desired outcome and length of time. And then they go back to being themselves and have to decide, okay, what do we do about how this played out? That's a cool idea. Give them the the tools and the the salient information about the factions or the NPCs or whatever, and and let them do it. That's sort of fun. Like there's, and there's been some neat exploration with that in uh, Dungeons and Dragons organized play epics where the, there are these big events where people are at various tables and they're playing through these adventures and they link from one table to the other and stuff. Uh, and Will Doyle has written up some really awesome scenes where like, you go into a, a tent and you're told, hey, these NPCs, you know, we're not sure what to do with them. We're in the triage tent. Some of them are sick. Uh, some of them are faking it. And some of them could be on Team Evil. And then the DM gives out these little summary cards to half of the table and says hey you're playing as npcs and you may have a secret on your card otherwise you know a thing you need to do and then the other half you guys need to decide do we put them in the cage do we heal them and spend our limited healing resources on on them or do we send them back to the front and it's such a fun scene it's so creative and it's it's just like playing a mini party game but it solves that issue of like you don't have to listen to these NPCs speak; you do it for them, right? And it's it's actually really fun. That's really cool. And fourth edition um, had some things around that, around cutscenes and stuff like that too, in the in one of the DMGs. Mm, yeah. And that That's makes me advice. that makes me think of um, another option with some of these NPCs too. If you have someone who's interested in playing D anD D but maybe isn't ready to commit to a whole player character yet. Um, or is only visiting briefly or something like that, NPCs can be a way to have folks uh, come to the table without having to have a large investment or the group investing and having them uh, be recurring. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I'd say, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really okay as a DM to want to have an NPC uh, to 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 kind of be your voice and to let you have some fun in the game. And you just want to be, like we said at the beginning, you just want to be careful about not letting them become yours uh, and also not to be overpowered. So there's some adventures, right, where you can have these NPCs that show up that are just more powerful than the entire party combined. Don't make that your character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In fact, they probably should leave as soon as possible. You don't want to overshadow players with NPCs. I think that never that never works. Right, and um, there are also aren't there some character um, like class builds or other features that kind of imply that there are going to be more NPCs that are part of the party um, than perhaps other builds. So you can have things like the like the noble background can summon retainers as the alternate feature. Um, in Acquisitions Incorporated, if you if you have a franchise, you have a whole team of people you get to hire. 
But the idea is they stay back at the whatever your base of operations is and they run it. So it's it's a nice thing because the DM can cut scene to what these NPCs are doing as a way of like relieving the we're endlessly in this tomb scene. You know, we're we're in this deep, deep dungeon, but hey, let's go back out to the outside and here's what your NPCs are up to. But but they don't tend to come with you. And there are those new rules for companion characters, though those are primarily intended, as I understand it, to be when you're like uh, a DM running for one player or something like that. Yeah, I'm actually doing that right now. I'm going through the Essentials Kit adventure uh, with one player who has one of the companions. And and really, one of two things almost always happens with that, because um, I've, I've tried it out with two people, and, and I can see that this is a pattern that... For those companions, it's either going to end up just being, if you have a player who's really into uh, sort of role-playing and doing their thing, it's going to end up just being a second PC uh, with a slightly simpler character sheet. Or it's going to be someone who uh, sort of gets sidelined uh, in terms of the, you know, the RP scenes and things like that and just sort of is a utility belt, basically, to fill in some gaps uh, that the that the player's main PC you know, might not be able to unlock doors or might be a squishy wizard. And so you want someone that the bad guys are going to attack first or things like that, but without a yeah. ton of sort of fleshed out information just because uh, have, well, anyway. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I've not yet tried those rules out. Some very, uh, I'd like to try that sometime and see how it goes. It's, there's a lot other, a lot of other things to say about it, but in terms of the companion stuff, it works, it works pretty well. And, and, uh, in terms of, you know, making it possible to get through an adventure, uh, with just one player. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so any other thoughts for this episode? One um, way that you can dangle an NPC and make them more useful is, is have some promise that pays out in the future. Like the, if you help me, I have a secret. Uh, if you take me to town, my family can reward you. That kind of thing. Like that's, if you need, if you feel like you need to have this NPC play a little bit longer, then if, if you communicate to the players, hey, there's something in it for you later, that NPC tends to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think for me, just sort of, it can all be summed up with a, you know, keep an eye on your players, know your players, and and always keep an eye on on how they're reacting to your NPCs. You know, one of the first things Teo said was like, get rid of them if they need to get be gotten rid of, right? If they're not landing, uh, find a way to get rid of them. And if they are super landing, then you can take that opportunity to, you know, flesh them out and make sure that they stick around. Um, but every table, every player is going to want something different out of their NPCs and is going to, you know, something different is going to cause an NPC to be memorable to every different person. So really just having a read on your players sort of at all times is, is going to be your best bet. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm going to call that the end of our episode. Uh, we'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Skull Splitter Dice, the listeners who support the show by using the affiliate links on Amazon and DMs Guild, as well as those who support us directly at patreon.com slash the tome show like jill sanders jeremiah mccoy and doug palmer and we'd also like to thank our guests hey Eugenio, where can folks find you online uh you can find me on twitter at at dm jazzy hands uh i post about the dns and d mostly on there uh you can also follow my actual play podcast the last refuge on twitter at at dnd last refuge 
where else can you find me? I stream twice a week right now uh, with the Variant Roles channel. Uh, I'm running a game of Overlight, which is a super cool RPG published by Renegade Game Studios. Uh, we've only got a couple more weeks on that one. And then I'm running uh, part of Descent into Avernus on Saturday mornings. Uh, so you can, I always tweet about it, so just check out my Twitter. But that's on the Variant Roles channel, twitch.tv slash Variant Roles. Uh, other than that, keep an eye on my Twitter for what else I'm working on. I've got a couple of adventures on the DMs Guild and stuff like that here and there. But eh, Twitter's the main place. Sweet. And Teos? Uh, is awesome, so you should go check him out first. If you have extra time, uh, I'm on Twitter at AlphaStream. Uh, I have a blog where I've been waxing philosophic over uh, downtime at alphastream.org. And I also have uh, some stuff on the DMs Guild. And uh, you can find one piece I worked on not too long ago, the Dwarven Forge Adventure Dungeon of Doom, completely free. It's enormous. And it is available on the Dwarven Forge website. And there'll be another one coming out before too long. Sweet. And then if you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. If you're following Jeff on his Marriott adventure through this uh, episode uh, and want to talk to him about his lack of appearance, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you you can tweet at him at at Squatch, that's S-Q-U-A-C-H. I'm at Sarah Dark Magic, S-A-R-H. D-A-R-K-M-A-G-I-C And the Tome Show also has a handle, the Tome Show. That's episode 329 where we made our game world more lively with a well-designed, diverse band of NBCs with distinct accents and a lot of fun in this episode of The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome